Could I ask you to turn in your Bible just now to Matthew's Gospel and to chapter 19. The Gospel by Matthew, first Gospel of the four, and to the 19th chapter. While you're turning up the place, I want to thank your pastor, Pastor Bertie, for the welcome to the meeting this morning here in the Moy, or the lifeboat, maybe more accurately, and uh, I'm delighted to be along. It's always a pleasure to come to this place and to see you folks again, and also to share some fellowship with our brother. If I could say something this morning, I think that was the best set of announcements I've ever heard this morning in the meeting. We're living in a day, a dreadful day, whenever terrible, terrible things are happening. They're all creeping in, inch by inch, and bit by bit, sometimes virtually unrecognizable, even by the people of God. And I'm so glad to hear that you're going to be praying against them. I want to congratulate you for that, because there's so many places today doing the opposite. I have been shocked and surprised by some that I have met and some of the things I have heard. Whenever your pastor was mentioning there about these clinics being set up and so on, goodness knows how many babies will be destroyed if that comes to pass. Reminded me of Hitler's gas chambers. Where's the difference? They're very little, if any at all. Just maybe more decorative or something like that, but a horrible situation is about to take place in this land, and we do certainly need to have people praying against it. So may God bless you in your prayers and in the stand you take, and uh, I assure you that we'll be with you 100% in the battle for right. What else can you do in the days we're living in but stand up for what you believe to be correct? I would ask prayer this morning concerning this sodomy situation. I have a nephew up to his neck and ears in it. And before he came out and declared what he was, he was a professing Christian and a Sunday school teacher. I find it hard to get my head around this kind of thing. But at the same time, he has stated this and left everything else and became the leader of this rainbow outfit to the heartbreak of his parents and so on, I certainly would value your prayers for him tonight and, or today rather. What troubles me a bit more about that is he's actually the deputy head of a large boys' school and yet he's allowed to carry on in that situation. I don't know what the situation is there or what the rules are. I have no idea, but that bothers me greatly. It really does. So I would ask prayer for that situation. And uh, I'm just announcing it here, knowing that you'll do that. Pray for him, that if he was ever there at all, that he'll get right back. And if he was never there, that the Lord will bring him there. For God's salvation is the answer to it all. Surely the Lord Jesus changes people. There's no question about that one. Now, I better read a little bit because the clock is going on. 
Look at verse number 23 there. And the Lord, sorry, then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man can hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the reality, if you like. Verse 24, And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, I'll not have any problem looking for the needle's eye. What about you, brother? You don't know about well, that one either. But uh, it was only when I was over in Israel some years ago that I learned it was actually possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They have these massive big doors, maybe about the width of this church, you see. And whenever a storm blows up, they close the doors. And on one of the doors, there's a little door about maybe three and a half foot high. And that's known as the needle. You see, not something that you'd darn your socks with or sew on a button at all. That's the needle. And the lesson the Lord was teaching was this, that a camel could go through but only on its knees. It's the thought of repentance that's there, getting down on your knees, making it right with God, and by so doing, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So you have the reality, and you have the repentance there. Now the request comes next in verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? And then you have the reply that comes from the Lord. I want you to watch the latter part of this reply. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. Now here's the bit. But with God all things are possible. But with God All things are possible. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his own precious word. During the past number of days, friends, I have been thinking a lot concerning the greatness of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're living in a day when men and so on have risen up and are doing their best to drag him down, tear him apart, make all kinds of evil suggestions. And in days like these, we certainly need to be there to preach him up and to do it without apology. Whenever our brother was talking about sodomites and so on there this morning, I was reminded of a radio program, a ring-in program that I was listening to some time ago. And it came round about the question of our Lord Jesus Christ and the twelve disciples. And the questioner was 
wanting to know why it was that Jesus chose 12 men and no woman. Now, could you see where the rascal was coming from? And the suggesting he was making over the air. I didn't have any problem figuring out what he was trying to say. I'm very glad that the commentator was able to handle it and handle it well. It was well done. But what a suggestion to make concerning our Savior who was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. But this morning, I want to remind us again of the greatness of Christ. Now, when I thought about this, friends, my mind went away back to the beginning of our Bible, to the very first chapter of Genesis and the very first verse, where we read these amazing words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hard to imagine a time of nothingness, isn't it? When there was no sun, moon, stars, earth, as we know it today. And yet, from that womb of nothingness, there burst forth the great creation as we know it today. What a wonder and what a marvel it is. I often stand at the seaside where I was born and brought up. I like to just go down there and look around me. But I often wonder what the world looked like before men got their hands on it. They think nothing of destroying it and blowing it apart. Yet someday the Savior will make it right again. Thank God for that day we long. But you know, friends, when you read a verse like that, God created. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But you know, when you come to the New Testament, there you begin to get illumination. Because it tells us this about our Lord Jesus Christ, that all things were made by him. Think of that. Your Savior, the babe of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, the one who died for us and rose again and who lives in heaven interceding for us just now and who's coming, we're looking for any day. All things were made by him. And here's the bit. Listen to it. Without him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that remarkable? I was sitting in a friend's garden here just the other evening, and these folks are very keen on feeding birds and that sort of thing. And I was on my own because they were making a barbecue and they wouldn't let me near it. Everything that I got burnt and destroyed, you see. I couldn't help laughing to myself this morning when I come in and I was wondering why this was happening. Uh, 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 your pastor was talking about pavlovas and cake and stuff 
And when I come in there this morning, what was he doing but loosening his belt? So if there's a lot of it missing, whenever you go out after the meeting, you'll know where it is, but there's a poor chance of you getting it back. But that's how it is. But as I sat there, friends, I was watching these little birds and the way they fly and the things they can do, you see. And I saw this bird just rising away up into the heavens and I'm saying to myself, boys, I'd love to be able to do that. But I can't. I can't. My feet are tied to the ground. And yet these words came into mind. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's a remarkable statement. That's your Savior and mine today. He is very great in great things, but he's also very great in little things. You know, I'm a great lover of nature, and I just love to watch it, seeing the, the, the blossom coming out in the trees. You say that's a marvelous thing. Aye, but how does it know when to come? You ever asked yourself that question? Never comes at the wrong time. Always comes at the right time. The daffodils, when they come out to bloom, they always come at the right time, never at the wrong time. That's all part of the marvel and miracle of creation. And yet, sometimes I feel that we don't observe that the way we should. However, that's another issue. But it took my mind to this verse and to this particular chapter, which I would encourage you to read because it's very interesting. But those amazing words, but with God. Now, of course, we can put in the Lord Jesus Christ there because he is God. Everything God is, Christ is. He that has seen me hath seen the Father. I and the Father are one. But with God, nothing, nothing shall be impossible. Isn't that a remarkable statement? And if I could get you going out through that door this morning and saying, yes, that's the very thing I need. That's what I needed to hear. That's what we've got to grips with today. That nothing is impossible with the God with whom we have to do. Who else can heal our land? Who else can do it? It's only God that can. I don't know whether I've ever related this to you or not, but I have a very close friend who lives in Portadown and he's an alcoholic and a very kind guy, but has this terrible problem. And uh, he'll meet me sometimes and he'll say, have you any money? And I'll say, I've had all the money ever was. I'm not giving it to you if you'd only drink it, but are you hungry? And he's never not hungry. So uh, I would take him in and get him a little something. But one day I met him. And he came running up in a hurry, shouting my name, and he never does that. I thought this was very unusual. So I took him in, and we sat down, and I said, tell me, boy, what's bothering you today? And here's an alcoholic asking this question. When is Jesus Christ coming back? Now, I was stunned by a question like that coming from this man. Surprised. And I looked at him and I said, look, I don't know. And I quoted that verse. Of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But I said, rest assured, he is coming. For he said he would. If I go, I will come again. 
But I said, why do you want to know that? And it was the answer that he gave me that I want to leave with you. He said, there is no other answer to the problems of the world but the return of Jesus Christ. Wasn't that something? Coming from a man with an alcohol problem. I want to tell you, friends, my friend was right. Absolutely right. We need to be like Noah, getting our eyes in that window, up on the ark, and keeping a good view up there. The only way Noah could see out was up, and in these days, while we see all this going around, happening, terrible, terrible things that distress us totally, nevertheless, keep your eyes up there, for Jesus is coming again. Now, with God, or with Christ, if you like, nothing shall be impossible, or all things are possible. Now, I want to bring this to the meeting with practical possibilities this morning, because this is a very practical statement. And if we can grasp it, we can see just how practical God is. Why would he want to do anything for the likes of we? I had a man put that question to me not so very long ago after a gospel meeting. He said, I need to be saved. But he said, I'm a sinner of the deepest dye. I'm steeped in it. But he said, why, why, why would God bother with me? Of course, we had to assure him that it was because God loved him and because Christ died for him. If you're here without the Savior today, my friend, God loves you and Christ died for you. And if you accept him, even there in the very seat where you sit, you can be saved, be like that particular uh, camel, get right down before him in your heart and in your mind and open your heart and bring the Savior in. And as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. But you know, friends, this took my mind away back, and I've jotted these verses down, but I don't want to misquote them, to the book of Joshua, chapter 1 and verse 5, where God said to that remarkable man, I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now, you can see the word thee twice in the verse. Very personal. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. How practical God is. Practical possibilities and promises are here. But it also brought my mind to Hebrews 13 and 4. I want to say a wee thing about this. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Is this what the writer to the Hebrews was thinking about. I think he was. I think he got that verse from Joshua in mind. But as a believer this morning, friends, for the days in which we live, the trials and the troubles and the problems that lie beyond that door, I want you to listen to what God is saying to you. I'll not fail you nor forsake you. I will never leave thee. Never Never, never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Now look, 
I'm not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar. Many a time I wish I had learned a little, but I never did. And I think I'm a bit late now. And I've got to depend on what others tell me. But I understand from those who know that this word never that we get in our Bible from time to time is a word that has been introduced because we don't have a word for the one in the original. Sometimes in translation that can happen. You see, you come across a word and there's no equivalent, so you use the next best thing. And that's what this word is. I will never. Now, what does the word actually mean? Well, it means this. I will never, no never, no never, no never, and add as many no nevers as you like. Leave thee, nor forsake thee. The hymn writer got it right. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he'll never, no never, desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. He'd got it right. Now what's the Lord saying? Listen, I'll never leave you. Let me illustrate that to you. You left your home this morning and you came to this service. And hopefully at the end of the service, you'll get back and all will be well. But the Lord's saying to you this morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to leave you and come back to you again. I remember a guy getting saved in gospel meetings years ago. And I didn't know he was actually coming up to court for some serious crimes that he had committed, and he ended up getting a prison sentence. Now, I didn't get very much time to work with him, but he used to write to me from the prison. And you'll understand this now when I tell you what he said in one of his letters. He said to me, he said, Harvey, listen, I've learned this in here that I'm stuck with God whether I like it or not. Think about that. Now, that was his way of putting it. I'm stuck with God whether I like it or not. He wasn't suggesting he didn't want to be unstuck. He was delighted with the fact that while he was enclosed in there for what he had done, God was with him. I'll never leave you. Now, forsake. Many a man, many a woman has forsaken a home and never came back. I was dealing with a case just of that nature this week. That's all I'm saying. But my friends, the Lord is saying to you, I'll not turn my back on you. If you leave your home this morning, you're coming back again. I'm not doing that. But if you forsake it, you're not coming back. The Lord says, I'm not doing that either. I'll never do either. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It made me think of that little old chorus that we sing, ever near to bless and cheer. In the darkest hour, when I'm tempted 
I can feel his power. At his side, I'll abide, never more to roam, till at last, fighting fast, he will take me home. He's with you, friend. He's with you as a fellowship. He's with you, your pastor, no matter how difficult the road may become. He's there. And he'll never leave you. And he'll never forsake you. That's a mighty thing. Mighty thing. That's a practical principle that's there. I must go on for the sake of time. There's also prayer principles. Now that one came up in our brother's announcements this morning. And I was glad to hear that because I don't understand why it is sometimes that you can hardly whip people into a prayer meeting. They'd rather do anything than go. I used to be very, very friendly with a guy from Ethiopia. I'm not a racist or anything like that, but he was a dark-skinned fella, and we had lovely fellowship together. His name was Tashomi Willie Sadok, and we called him Tesh, just to shorten it down a bit. But whenever you were going into a meeting with Tesh, he couldn't get into the prayer meeting quick enough. And when the meeting was over, he couldn't get out and away quick enough. And I said to him one day, I said, Tesh, what's, what's your reason for Why do you do that? Ah, oh, he said, Harvey, old nonsense talk. Think about that. Old nonsense talk. I said, what are you talking about? He said, they just stand around before the meeting talking nonsense and they do the same afterwards. And he says, why don't they use their time to pray? Get the point, haven't they? I have known professing Christians all my life. I've never seen them in a prayer meeting. I think if you saw them, the roof would come in. In a prayer meeting. I've never seen them in it. But you know, friends, there was a man going down the Damascus Road one day by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And the Lord saved him. And the very first thing we read about him is this. Behold, he prayeth. Wonder could we say that about you? Now, I'm up here this morning, and I know that some of you, but I don't know all of you, so I can talk pretty freely. But I'm not going to get our brother into bother. I'm just asking a question. Behold, take a look at that. What's he doing now? This man was a murderer, a persecutor. He, he was putting the people of God to death. He was determined to wipe the, the name of Christ of the earth, if he could possibly do it. And yet, on the Damascus road, he bit the dust and found the Savior. And here's what it says. Listen to it again. Behold, look at that. It's amazing. Behold, he prayed. Boy, it's good to see a convert getting into the prayer meeting. That, to me, is a good, good fault. I think you know what I mean. A good, good sign that they've got into the prayer meeting to pray. Tell me this. I'm going to ask you all a question today. If the Lord stepped into this meeting tonight and he saved a young man and he saved a young woman, could the young man take his example from you men in this meeting this morning about getting out to the prayer meeting? And could the young woman take her example from you, ladies, this morning about getting out to the prayer meeting 
or would they never be in it? Or maybe about once or twice a year. That's worth thinking about, isn't it? Now listen to this for a minute. I was greatly taken by this statement in Second Chronicles 30, 27. And this has got to do with the priests and Levites. And here's what we read. And their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Let, let me repeat that. And their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. When you're praying in the Holy Ghost, that's where your prayer goes. To his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Boy, that's something, isn't it? That is something. That your prayer can go right into God's holy dwelling place, right into heaven. That's a prayer principle. O thou who hearest prayer, to thee shall all flesh come. And you know, I was greatly struck about Peter. If you remember, Peter was in the prison. And uh, he was chained to soldiers. And he was going to be brought out the next day and beheaded. And Peter's sitting fast asleep. I wonder if you thought that was going to happen to you tomorrow morning. Would you be sleeping? But I'll tell you why Peter was sleeping, friends. He was just resting on the promises of God. The Lord Jesus had said to him, when thou art old, certain things will happen. Well, Peter wasn't old. He knew that the Lord would have to deliver him. And finally, the deliverance came in response to the prayers of God's people. But take down your Bible and read what it says about the prayer meeting. Now, I've been struck the way this was worded. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church, not the half of them, the whole lot of them, unto God for him. Listen again. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Boy, how we need that unity. And the angel of the Lord came, eh? And knocked the chains off him and opened the doors. And out he went. And when he came to the door where they were praying, they didn't believe it. That's remarkable, isn't it? We're such unbelieving believers at times. But there's that prayer principle. There's one final thing, friends, I want to mention to you. And that's power principle. Power promises. You know the almighty power of God, friends. There's no substitute for it. It's one thing to preach with it. But boy, is it difficult when it's not really there. And you can get some people very, very critical. You see, now two things and I'm finished. Number one, I was along with a colleague years and years and years ago, and we were having a mission. And it was so hard. 
so terribly hard. And we didn't know the area. And then when we got into the area a little bit deeper, we found out that we were steeped in Cooneyism. And boy, were they hard to reach these people, you see. And they didn't want the mission. And they were actually praying against us. And it was hard. But the fellow that was with me would have been a wee bit blunt. Maybe a bit blunter than me, you know. But this boy was coming out of the door one night and he was shaking hands. And he got hold of Henry's hand and he said to him, not much power than night, brother. And Henry looked at him. You think not? No, not much power tonight, brother. But he says, you go away home and come back tomorrow night and bring a bit with you. Huh? I want to tell you what happened. On the Sunday afternoon, we met about 2 o'clock to pray. It was myself, my colleague in the mission, and a young lady who's now in heaven who sang for us all the time. And the three of us decided to get together to pray. And boy, was it hard. And we knelt together, and the two of us prayed, did our best. And then we sat on our knees for quite a while. And all of a sudden, dear Lily, dear Lily sobbed out. I can hear it yet. Lord, save sinners. And I, I'll tell you the effect it had on me. I was scared to open my eyes, friends, in case I'd see the Lord. It had such a grip. She was in dead earnest. Lord, save sinners. And I remember turning to the two of them and I said this, look, Let's get up of our knees, for that prayer is both heard and answered. And it was. And that afternoon, the Lord broke through, and people were saved. And from that to the end of the mission, someone found the Lord every night. That's the power I'm talking about. But it only comes through prayer. Only. There's no new cart that'll bring this to the moy or to the lifeboat. None. It's one you know about. And the Lord will bless you if you put it into action. Way over the time. The Lord bless you. And as a fellowship, may the Lord use you mightily and use you for the glory of his own great name. Keep this boy of the Pavlova and the whatever. Okay? Kill you that stuff. <laughs>